We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And away we go, episode 15 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Thursday, March 11th, 2021. The news be ramping up when it comes to the Washington football team. Four days away are we from the start of the madness, the insanity that is NFL free agency as the legal tampering period when all the signings start breaking begins on Monday. And so it was yesterday, Wednesday, that a whole lot of stuff went down. Kyle Allen news, Cam Sims news, Rod Rivera spoke for 30 plus minutes. I will cover it all for you on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Like the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill passed by the House on Wednesday, I am here for you. You can count on this podcast to be there for you. You see, who says that our Congress uh, gets nothing done? So lots on the Washington football team today. The Wizards, our Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, those guys. Thank you, Stephen A. Back in action on Wednesday night. Back from their all-star break on Wednesday night. And it was as if there had been no all-star break. Absolutely demolished inside in a loss at Memphis. We'll talk about that. Max Scherzer, dominant for the Nationals in his exhibition outing on Wednesday afternoon. John Lester opened up about his recent surgery. We'll talk some Nats on this podcast today. And College Hoops, great win for Georgetown in the Big East Tournament on Wednesday afternoon. And a shot on this Thursday at a perhaps very vulnerable Villanova team. Got to get into that. And uh, welcome back Patrick Stevens, bracketologist for the Washington Post to talk Maryland, Virginia, and Virginia Tech as all three of those schools play in conference tournaments on Thursday. So I debated whether I should do this, but today is March 11th, like I said. And It's essentially the one-year anniversary of COVID-19 truly becoming a thing 
in this country. Now, it's not like it's the one-year anniversary of COVID-19 happening, okay? We know by now COVID-19 really started happening late in the year 2019. When exactly, we are not sure. Uh, how exactly, we're still not precisely sure. But anyway, it was March 11th, 2020 that the World Health Organization announced that COVID-19 was officially a pandemic. It was March 11th, 2020, that you had things like the president of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, announcing that the men's and women's basketball tournaments would be held without fans in attendance at games. And of course, those tournaments ended up being canceled. It was March 11th, 2020, that we had the Rudy Gobert scenario. And this, I know for me, and I'm guessing for a lot of you, especially from a sports standpoint, was like the thing that cemented COVID-19 as a thing, where Rudy Gobert tests positive, NBA suspends its season indefinitely, and that really created this domino effect of every other major pro sports league shutting things down. March 11th, 2020. You know, it was also March 11th, 2020 that Tom Hanks announced that he and his wife, uh, Rita Wilson, had tested positive for the coronavirus in Australia. So March 11th is kind of like the day where, you know, it all hit the fan and uh, things changed and maybe changed forever. Uh, you know, we'll see where we end up uh, with everything moving forward. But, you know, I don't want to do a whole spiel here on what has happened to our world over the last 365 days or anything like that. I hate when people, especially in the realm of sports talk, try to be preachy and try to say, let me tell you how you should look at the events all across the world. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, I simply would say this. I hope you are healthy. I hope your family and friends are healthy. If you have suffered loss, I hope you are healing. I hope what we have gone through over the last year, we never go through again. It should have never happened. It matters how this happened. It matters why this happened. So we can avoid this from happening ever again. And I would say two things in terms of positives. And certainly this whole pandemic has not been a positive. Uh, Nobody would ever say that. But that doesn't mean that out of the darkness, you can't have some light, as uh, people like to say. So number one, I think it really is amazing and a testament to modern science and modern medicine that we have developed multiple vaccines as quickly as we have. I think that's tremendous. I don't think you can say enough about that. And what it says about what we are capable of as a society when we sort of come together, band together, put our resources together and try to figure stuff out. I mean, remember what we were initially told about COVID-19 vaccines a year to 18 months. And instead, it's not just that you got a vaccine developed within a year. It's that you have multiple vaccines having been developed within a year. That's spectacular. Uh, You cannot say enough about that. And when you combine that with the, of course, incredible heroic work done by doctors and nurses and medical staff people all across this country, this really has served to highlight modern medicine and modern science in a lot of ways. So I think there is that. And I also would say this. I think the pandemic, in a lot of ways, has been a testament to sports. Sports have helped a lot of people get through this, you know, especially those dealing with isolation and loneliness during all the shutdowns. And sports, despite the cries of many and, you know, a whole lot of people, including a lot of people in my line of work, saying sports shouldn't happen. Sports can't happen. How dare you try to have your seasons? Sports have happened and they have happened for the most part safely and successfully, especially when you look at the big four major pro sports in this country, baseball, football, 
basketball, hockey, MOB, NFL, NBA, NHL. All four major pro sports leagues ended up having their seasons and ended up doing great jobs in having their seasons. Ended up doing better jobs than a lot of people ever thought those leagues would end up doing. And so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful those leagues plowed forward. You know, it wasn't always easy. It's not to say that there weren't hiccups, but you know, there's something to be said. I think there's a lot to be said for instead of just quitting, tapping out, you figure it out and you behave responsibly, you behave safely, but you don't behave timidly and you don't say, oh, we got to shut everything down. It's like, no, we can make this work. And the leagues did make this work. And I give a lot of credit to the executive offices, to the coaches and to the players. You know, it's, it's very fashionable to bash athletes. I certainly do it on this podcast at times when it's called for, but I give a lot of these athletes a lot of credit because they did a very good job being able to have their season. So, you know, like I said, no, this has not been a good thing. This has been a disastrous thing, but there are some positive things that you can pinpoint. And uh, I did want to highlight at least a few of those things. All right. Uh, you can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Got this tweet from Seji. On Wednesday, I love this. He says, is it possible, Galdi, <laughs> that the NFL is waiting to give us the news on the long-awaited results inside the Washington franchise until Thanksgiving, thus completing the circle that Dan Snyder set himself to grant us a happy Thanksgiving wish, which would be of him selling the team? Uh, wouldn't that be something? I mean, it's going to be a while, right? If we don't get the findings, the recommendations of the Beth Wilkinson investigation until Thanksgiving, but it would be sort of a perfect bookend to everything, wouldn't it? It would be so appropriate, so symbolic in so many ways if we did not get the recommendations until Thanksgiving. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, thank you, Danny. Thank you very much. By the way, I got to say this. You know, we're going to do so much on this installment of the podcast on the Ron Rivera 30-plus minute Zoom press conference on Wednesday. But this is a little bit of a preview here for you right now. So Ron at one point got asked about if he believes that the findings of the Beth Wilkinson investigation should be made public, okay? (laughs) So Ron, this is great. This is what Ron had to say when he got asked that. Well, I can tell you this much. This is, that's beyond me right now. That's that's not for me to, to say. Um, the biggest thing I'm here to talk about right now is, is, is the draft and free agency and our football team as far as, you know, where we are today and where we are going forward. Yeah. Old Don Ron, uh, not that interested in addressing the sexual harassment scandal investigation. And I don't blame him. The investigation has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with things that happened well before he got ever hired as the head coach of this team. You know, Ron's probably like, don't bring me into that garbage, okay? I had nothing to do with that stuff, okay? Leave me alone. Ask me about Kyle Allen's exclusive rights free agent tender, okay? Why don't you do something like that instead of asking me about who got harassed and when and how and if, in fact, these things even ended up going down. By the way, uh, we have not made mention of this on this podcast this week. There is an update to the Sports Junkies Beth Wilkinson report report that came out last Friday morning. So remember, it was the Junkies and the Junkies alone who on Friday morning said that they had received information from Beth Wilkinson's report on her findings in the investigation, right? We're still waiting on these findings for an investigation that started last summer, last July, 
And the top two recommendations for the junkies were one, force the owner to divest ownership of his team and two, suspend the owner for a significant period of time to allow time to repair the team's infrastructure and culture. And immediately the NFL came out and said, this isn't true. You know, the NFL, uh, speaking to various media outlets, both local and national, said that this was, quote, absolutely false, end quote, and that the league had, quote, received no such report, end quote. Well, 106.7 The Fan on Monday issued a correction of sorts, quote, the league has denied receiving a final report. However, both in a general statement and in response to specific questions from us, based on those unequivocal denials, we now believe that our source was mistaken and that the excerpts of the report that were shared with us have not yet been sent to the NFL. We do believe in the authenticity of the documents we reviewed and that they are from the Wilkinson investigation, but we are unable to confirm that the report was a final draft or that it had been delivered to the league office. As soon as we are able to report anything further on this, we will let you know both as to what occurred in our Friday report and regarding the Wilkinson investigation generally. End quote. So that is a significant step back from the report. There's no doubt about that. Now, it doesn't mean that what was reported by the junkies ends up not being the case. That is true. You know, like I said, when we talked about this on Monday, I'm not one of these people that just dismisses this and said, well, it's, you know, a sports radio show that's reporting this and not, not a traditional news media outlet. I'm like, eh, that doesn't matter. In today's day and age, all kinds of people end up breaking things. It's not just, you know, the traditional news media that gets the job done in that regard. However, it is notable, and it is a significant update to this item, that the radio station comes out and says, yeah, you know, we're kind of uh, going to walk this back just a little bit. And we're not saying necessarily that it's not true that these recommendations are being made or will be made, but we can say now that we were mistaken in saying that this was a final draft or that this report had been delivered to the league office. So stay tuned on that front. Uh, but I think that's notable, and in case you missed that, because it didn't necessarily get a lot of attention, uh, it's worth knowing if you're a Washington football team fan. All right, like I said, there is a ton to get into with our Washington football team on this Thursday, and so let's get into all of it, starting now. All right, before we start unpacking the lengthy 30-plus minute Zoom press conference for Ron Rivera, on Wednesday. Let's deal with some actual news that was put out by the Washington football team on Wednesday afternoon. Washington announcing that it has tendered Kyle Allen as an exclusive rights free agent. There are many forms of free agency in the NFL. There's unrestricted free agency. There's restricted free agency. There's also something called exclusive rights free agency. I will not bore you with what makes you an exclusive rights free agent versus what makes you a restricted free agent, but just know when you are an exclusive rights free agent, you almost always end up back with your team. You are, as the title suggests, a free agent exclusive to your team. So it's free agency only in name when you're an exclusive rights free agent. So Washington has tendered Kyle Allen a contract. This was expected all along. It's a nothing contract. Understand this. The tender is for $850,000. Lots of money to you and me, but in major pro sports, that is relative peanuts. So Kyle Allen is going to be coming back under the terms of this tender, right? He's going to sign the tender. There's no real like worry about that or anything else. And Kyle Allen is going to be under contract to the Washington football team 
for the 2021 season. So you're going to have Kyle Allen under the terms of this one-year $850,000 exclusive rights free agent tender. You already have Taylor Heineke under the terms of that two-year contract that he signed back on February 10th. Heineke, remember, had been said to be a restricted free agent this offseason, gets re-signed to this two-year deal. There's been confusion about, is Kyle Allen a restricted free agent or an exclusive rights free agent? Taylor Heineke, was he going to be a restricted free agent or something else? It's been uh, it's been misreported. It's been misrepresented. Understand, Kyle Allen was set to be an exclusive rights free agent. Taylor Heineke was set to be a restricted free agent. And both guy ends up being re-signed before free agency begins in the NFL. And remember this, you know, we made mention of the Kyle Allen exclusive rights free agent tender being for less than a million dollars. This Taylor Heineke two-year deal that he did about a month ago with the Washington football team, the details are very telling. And the headlines when this came out was, okay, two-year deal, $8.75 million. That's what was initially reported. But understand, the contract for Heineke also has just $1.5 million guaranteed has salaries of just a million dollars in 2021 and one and a half million dollars in 2022 and has salary cap hits of just 1.6 million dollars in 2021 and 2.75 million dollars in 2022. So each guy has a very cheap, very team friendly, very affordable contract. And this Heineke contract, he is incredibly cuttable. And I think the contract is kind of a perfect thing in terms of making each side want to do the deal, which is why the deal got done. If you're Heineke, you do have a two-year deal as opposed to just some restricted free agent tender that you end up signing. And you do have a deal for some real money if, in fact, you end up sticking with the team and becoming the starter or at least playing substantially. Again, two years, $8.75 million as the max value. But if you're Washington, Heineke is very cuttable. You're only guaranteeing him $1.5 million. You have uber manageable cap hits, you know, $1.6 million this year, $2.75 in 2022. So it makes sense on both sides. That's usually what ends up getting deals done. So Allen going to be under contract here. Heineke already under contract. I wanted this all along. I think most of you wanted this all along. I said this the second that Washington's playoff loss to Tampa Bay ended. The second that that super wild card loss came to its conclusion. 31-23 to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back in January. I wanted as my quarterback mix for 2021, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, and an acquisition of consequence this offseason, either via trade, free agency, or the draft. And of course, we've spent so much time talking about what might that acquisition of consequence end up being. But I very much have always wanted both Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineke back. And I want an open, honest, good faith quarterback competition this summer. Okay. Assuming that you don't make a trade for like a Deshaun Watson, where it's obvious the guy's your starter. I want a good faith, open, honest competition at the quarterback spot. What we should have had last summer, but did not end up having. And if you ask me right now, you say, okay, if it's Allen versus Heineke versus, let's say, Marcus Mariota, okay, just to throw out a name that's been out there a bunch, I don't think it's ridiculous to suggest that Kyle Allen is the favorite in the competition, that Kyle Allen ends up winning the competition. There's a lot that suggests that Kyle Allen is someone who this team really likes and really believes in, okay? I've brought this up many times, but Ron Rivera on December 30th, the Wednesday before the Week 17 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football to clinch the NFC East gets asked, Ron, would you be here 
if not for the heroics of Alex Smith? And Ron says, yeah, if Kyle Allen had stayed healthy, actually, I think we would be here. One of the most telling answers by Ron Rivera the entire 2020 season. And that's saying something because there were a lot of telling and interesting answers from Don Ron during the 2020 season. Kyle Allen, through the prism of ESPN's total QBR, was by miles Washington's best starting quarterback last regular season. Dwayne Haskins had a QBR of 31. Alex Smith had a QBR of 34.8. Kyle Allen had a QBR of 74.5. It's hard to ignore a discrepancy like that. And look, Kyle Allen only played in four games, so it's definitely small sample size theater when you're talking about something like that. But man, that is a massive gap, right? Dwayne and Alex in the territory of the 30s when it came to those guys' QBRs. Kyle Allen up in the 70s. So that's significant. QBR to me, like no stat is perfect for quarterback play, but the best single stat, like the best one-stop shop, like if you're just looking for something, a a quick fix in terms of, is this guy good or not? QBR is the best thing to look at because it incorporates not just what you do as a passer, but what you do as a runner, what you do in terms of taking sacks, and it factors in context, i.e. whether it's a blowout or a close game, whether it's the first quarter or the fourth quarter, whether you're facing a great defense or a bad defense. And Kyle Allen, I mean, by miles was better than both Dwayne and Alex through that QBR prism in the 2020 regular season. And just, you know, thinking about things like anecdotally, like going back to how Kyle Allen looked when he was the starter. Remember, Ron Rivera went not from Dwayne Haskins to Alex Smith. Ron Rivera went from Dwayne Haskins to Kyle Allen and then Alex Smith became the QB1 in 2020. And the offense with Kyle Allen got better instantly. Okay, now the schedule did soften. That is true. But the offense looked better. It was more efficient. Washington, which was wretched on third downs over the first five games of the season, ended up being a lot better on third downs as the season moved forward. And Kyle Allen at quarterback was the thing that really ignited that. So look, do I know a certainty what Kyle Allen is? No, I do not. Okay, you go back to that 2019 season that he had with the Carolina Panthers. It was a Jekyll and Hyde year for Kyle Allen. First four starts, he goes four and those, seven touchdown passes versus no picks, averages 7.4 yards per pass attempt. Then comes the rest of Allen's 2019 season, and it's a disaster. His final eight starts, he goes one and seven, 10 touchdown passes versus 15 interceptions, averages 6.5 yards per pass attempt, takes 35 sacks. And included in that mix, as many of you know, the final game for Ron Rivera as Panthers head coach, a 29-21 Washington win at the Panthers in week 13 of that 2019 season. Washington decimated Kyle Allen, destroyed Kyle Allen in that game to the tune of sacking him seven times. So yeah, I, I'm not convinced on anything with Kyle Allen, but I tell you what, I liked a lot of what we saw in 2020, and I wouldn't mind seeing some more. And so to the extent of should Kyle Allen be a part of Washington's quarterback mix in 2021, heck yeah, he should be. And if he is the starter, I'm not going to be stunned, but he should have to earn it just like anyone else, unless that person is, like I said, Deshaun Watson or, you know, Russell Wilson or somebody like that. There needs to be an open, honest quarterback competition this summer. Allen and Heineke both deserve to be in the mix, and we now know that both Allen and Heineke will be in that mix. Here was, by the way, Ron Rivera on Wednesday during his Zoom press conference on the Washington quarterback situation and the search for a person number three for this quarterback mix for 2021. Well, the biggest thing, guys, is we're going to continue to look. We're, we're, we're going through this process. You know, our agency starts next week. 
The draft is in a, in, in 50 days, I understand. So, uh, you know, we still have time and, and we're going to continue to, 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 to explore all the options that are out there. I, I think, you know, you guys, I get it. You guys want answers, but we don't have answers for you right now because uh, we're still working through the process. Again, we've got a lot of time, you know, with free agency next week and the draft in 50 days. Yeah, Ron wasn't giving us nothing on Wednesday in terms of what the team is thinking at quarterback. And by the way, he should give us nothing. I think the one thing, though, you do take from that and you do take from the way Ron has previously spoken about the quarterback position this offseason for 2021 is Washington is searching. You know, Washington does have wandering eyes. Washington is in no way just saying, yeah, it's Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen and may the best man win. Washington is saying we want to upgrade. We want to do better, and you can do better. At the very least, you can bring in more competition and try to create more of a mix to where you're not so reliant on two guys who are largely unproven in Allen and Heineke, but who also, I believe, have talent, certainly have familiarity with what Scott Turner does offensively, and should not be dismissed in this quarterback situation. Now, here was some more from Ron on the ongoing search at quarterback. And the question had to do with whether Ron puts pressure on himself to make the right decisions in free agency. Take a listen. Well, I, I don't feel any pressure about certain things uh, to be to be upfront about that. To me, the, the biggest thing is the pressure is, is applied uh, by you and you alone, uh, as far as I'm concerned. So to me, um, you know, what we just have to do is we have to make what we feel is the best pick. And that's really it. And, and there's a lot more to, to, that goes into it, too, because you've got to make sure you have the people around them. So, you know, we're going to go through this very judiciously, um, and and we'll see. But, you know, we have time. We, we, we really do. We have an opportunity to grow it the right way um, in, in all three phases. And so um, if, if, you know, if, if the quote-unquote um, – franchise guy isn't out there, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go with guys that we believe give us a chance to win. And, uh, and that's really what you do. Um, you know, do you want to be able to say, this is our franchise quarterback? Well, yeah, you would love to, but you don't know that until the quarterback starts playing or quarterbacks. And once that happens, then you'll know. And so we just got to continue to go through this, study the players and, and get the one that we feel uh, can become that player. And we'll see what happens. So I thought that right there was one of the more telling answers that Ron Rivera gave in his Zoom press conference on Wednesday. You know, we're getting to know Ron Rivera here. And now that he's been the head coach for Washington for more than a year, we have a sense on how he is and how telling truly his press conferences can be. And while he can Belichick it at times, especially when it comes to injuries, Ron's also a guy who can, shall we say, Callahan it at times. You know, Bill Callahan used to give the longest answers in the history of Washington football team head coach press conferences. And I don't know that Ron is on Callahan's level, but Ron will give you lengthy, expansive answers. And that was one of them on Wednesday. And when he says regarding the ongoing search at quarterback, quote, we have time. We really do. That was a theme that Ron harped on on Wednesday. I'm going to do more on that coming up in just a bit, but he was preaching patience. He was preaching, hey, there's no need to be stupid. There's no need to be reckless. There's no need to say, we have to find the guy right now. Like, no, we want to build this thing up the right way. And when Ron also says in that answer, if the quote unquote franchise guy isn't out there, we're going to go with guys that we believe give us a chance to win. I thought that was telling. I thought that was his way of saying, yeah, 
it may end up being a Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, Marcus Mariota production for 2021. Or it may be a Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen drafted rookie production for 2021. It doesn't have to be. We have to find the guy this offseason. And I think that is 100% the right way to look at this. You want to behave with urgency. You want to be bold. But you also don't want to make it so that we have to do something right now. You don't have to do anything. You have to do what you feel is in the best interest of the organization long term. This isn't about trying to contend in 2021, although I do believe Washington can contend in 2021, contend for another NFC title, contend for, say, a 10-11-12 win type year if you drastically do upgrade what you have at quarterback. But it's not like the gun is to your head to where you have to get it done this offseason and you have to have a playoff year next year. You'd like to have a playoff year next year, but it's not about what you do in 2021. It's about what you do 2021, 2022, 2023, and beyond. It's about building a sustained winner. It's not about having any more of these flash in the pan, one season surges, and then you're right back to being in double-digit loss territory. Washington has not made the postseason in back-to-back years since making three consecutive playoff appearances, 1990 through 1992. Think about that. Every playoff appearance for Washington since that stretch has been a one-year thing, and then the next year, you're right back to not being in the postseason. You want to build a sustained winner for the first time in basically 30 years for this franchise. And it's amazing to hear myself say that out loud, but of course it's true. You have to go back to the early 90s for the last time Washington was a consistent winner. And there's another thing too when it comes to finding your franchise quarterback, and I've always believed this, and it always bothers me when I hear people say the opposite. You don't schedule when you get your franchise quarterback. You know, I've heard people say, well, why don't they really should build up the offensive line, build up the skill positions, and then get your quarterback. You don't do it that way. You don't say, well, I'll get my franchise quarterback in the 2022 offseason or the 2023 offseason. You have to see when the opportunity presents itself and you got to pounce. You know, that's the thing. When the opportunity comes up, you have to pounce. You have to be all over it. But you, you don't schedule it because you don't know what kind of circumstances will be around you. You don't know what kind of opportunities will arise. You know, it's like getting married. You don't say, okay, I'm ready to get married. Who's going to be my wife? It's like, no, you have to kind of let it happen naturally, organically. You know, you don't force the thing. You try to figure it out to where you're like, okay, hmm, I kind of like this person. Maybe we should have a future together. It's that, okay, uh, I'm getting older and I need to get married. So I need to find myself a spouse. It's like, it doesn't work that way. Or, well, I guess it can work that way, but it doesn't seem to work out well. If you do it that way, you don't schedule these things. You have to let these things happen. You can't force these things. You have to let these things develop. And that's what Ron was preaching in that response. We're going to get to a lot more of what Ron had to say in the Zoom presser on Wednesday. But I told you there was Washington football team news. And we'll get to something right now that came out on Wednesday night. Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN on Wednesday night reporting that Washington will be tendering Cam Sims a contract as a restricted free agent. Certainly not a surprise, but it is worth reading into the record. Washington wants Cam Sims back on the team for 2021. So like we talked about with Kyle Allen, there are various versions of free agency. Cam Sims is set to be a restricted free agent, and the way it works with restricted free agents is that you as a team can tender a restricted free agent to be at one of multiple levels. And the higher the level, the more the money for the player in the tender, 
and then the more the compensation for the team should it not match an offer sheet. The way restricted free agency works is you submit a tender to a player. It's a one-year contract, right? You tender the player that one-year contract at, like I said, one of multiple levels. The player can either sign the tender and be back with you on that one-year deal for the following season, or the player can go into restricted free agency and at some point sign what's called an offer sheet with another team. And then you, as the original team, have the right to either match that offer sheet at the contract terms that the potential new team had set, or uh, you can decline to match the offer sheet. The player goes to that new team, but you get back compensation from that team based on the tender that you gave to the player previously. So it can be a little complicated. Often restricted free agents don't change teams and nobody expects Cam Sims to change teams. Everyone expects Cam Sims to be back with Washington in 2021 and he should be back with Washington in 2021. Cam Sims is going into his age 25 season. He was one of the nice stories for the Washington football team as the 2020 season went on. Now his final numbers were not like draw dropping or anything like that. But he played in all 16 games. He finished with 32 catches for 477 yards and a touchdown on 48 targets. And there were two performances that stood out in particular when it came to Cam Sims in 2020 in the regular season. 23-20 loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field in Week 9. Cam Sims in that game had three catches for 110 yards on four targets. Three catches for 110 yards. According to Pro Football Reference, Cam in that game became just the second player in Washington history to have a game with 110 or more receiving yards on three or fewer receptions. The other guy who did this was Gary Clark in December 1991. The second regular season game that really jumped out when it came to Cam Sims last year, 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers in that Monday evening game in week 13. Cam was great in that game, five catches for 92 yards uh, on nine targets. You may remember this play in that game. Alex Smith, a fourth quarter, third and four, 29-yard completion to Cam, who made a tremendous one-arm catch with his right arm. And then came the postseason. Cam Sims was terrific in that 31-23 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field on, remember, not wild card weekend, but super wild card weekend. Cam in that game, seven catches for 104 yards on 13 targets. He played on every Washington offensive snap in that game, and the vibe, the rhythm, the connection that Cam and Taylor Heineke had in that game was a beautiful thing to see. Heineke, first quarter, third and six, 36-yard completion to Cam Sims. Heineke, third quarter, first and 10, 19-yard completion to Cam Sims. Heineke, fourth quarter, first and 10, 23-yard completion to Cam Sims. Now look, Cam does have an issue with drops. He had two drops in that Washington loss to the Carolina Panthers at FedEx Field in week 16. He had a drop in that playoff loss to the Bucks. Uh, you may remember Cam Sims very early in the game should have kept running, did not, ended up having a drop while wide open on a Taylor Heineke deep in completion. So he's got to work on that. You know, he's far from a finished, polished product, but he's a great story. 2018 undrafted free agent out of Alabama, suffered a high ankle sprain in that season opening win at the Arizona Cardinals that year, spent the rest of the season on injured reserve. 2019 Cam released in the cut down to 53, had multiple practice squad and active roster stints with Washington. 2020, this past season, he was waived in a cut down to 53, but then was signed to the practice squad, elevated the active roster for each of Washington's first two games, and then promoted to the active roster in late September, and he was with the team moving forward. And like I said, he produced as the season went on. So great to have Cam Sims back on the team, assuming he ends up signing the restricted free agent tender. And I'll say this with Cam Sims, 
you, you can't just sit here and say like, well, he's your number two for next year. Like, that's not the way to do this. But as your number three, yeah, I could buy that. I could see that, you know. Washington's got to upgrade at receiver. You need someone to compliment Terry McLaurin. I think Washington is going to be a player player in free agency when it comes to the receiver position, whether you're talking about Kenny Galladay or Curtis Samuel or maybe Juju Smith-Schuster. You know, you're going to have options in free agency. You're going to have options in the draft. This is set to be another loaded NFL draft when it comes to the receiver position. But Cam Sims absolutely should be a part of the Washington receiver mix for 2021. And let's hope that the improvement keeps coming because he definitely showed in 2020 that the big play potential he flashed in the preseason a few years ago is legit and he can produce at the highest level. All right, we arrive now at Ron Rivera's Zoom press conference on Wednesday. And what to me was the number one theme by far from the 30-plus minute session. You know, Ron Rivera is the Don. He is the head coach in the coach-centric approach. He is the godfather of the Washington football team right now when it comes to football operations. So when he speaks, we pay attention. And how he speaks matters. And this stood out to me more than anything. The balance that Ron Rivera struck during this press conference in saying that Washington is poised to act aggressively in free agency while acknowledging that Washington can't be delusional about where it is off having won a very weak NFC East in 2020. It was the perfect tone. It was the perfect philosophy that was espoused by Ron Rivera of, yes, we're going to behave with urgency. And yes, we're going to strike and strike quickly in free agency because we want to get better. And this is the NFL. And it's not like you do, you know, some lengthy rebuild before you can finally be good and make postseasons. But on the other hand, we're not going to be stupid. We're not going to look at, hey, we won the NFC East, so we're right there, and we need to do things that really make it so that we win in 2021, and that's it. Like, it's all about 2021. The future is now, that kind of thing. He's like, no, we're going to build this thing up the right way, and we understand that we went 7-9 and nine last year, and again, we won a really bad division. This, to me, is exactly the kind of sober self-evaluation that every good franchise needs. You're not seduced by success, okay? Now, you want success and you enjoy success, but you're also willing to look at success in a very honest, upfront way and not just say, well, we won. That's all that matters. Like, well, yeah, but who did you beat and how did you beat them? And did you win because of certain things or in spite of certain things? This this was 100% exactly the kind of tone that I wanted to hear. And this is exactly, to me, the way that Washington should be operating this offseason. Operate with urgency, but operate with intelligence. Operate with the bigger picture in mind. Again, it's not about 2021. It's about 2021, 2022, 2023, etc. The very first question that Ron got asked on Wednesday was about balancing long-term and short-term goals in free agency. And here's what he said. This, to me, was the tone setter for the entire press conference. Well, I think it, I think it's really about going forward, you know, thinking about what we have to do and, and what we have to control as we go into uh, the future. I mean, we're not desperate. There, there, there's no immediate need to, to have to, got to, must. Um, what we're looking to do is we're looking to build a sustainable winning culture. And, and we want to put the football team together the right way. You know, a lot of good things happened last year. You know, we, we did something that was a little unexpected, which I, you know, I acknowledge. But at the same time, you know, just because of that, uh, I, I really don't think you, you, you throw the plan away and, and you, 
you know, and you, you, you start reaching and, and, and doing things that you, you don't need to do right now. Uh, I think what you do is you continue to put the pieces and puzzle, uh, of the puzzle in place and, uh, hopefully build it the right way and put it all together the way you need it to be. You heard it right there from Ron very early in that response. We're not desperate. There's no immediate need to have to, got to, must. What we're looking to do is we're looking to build a winning, sustainable culture. We want to put the football team together the right way. Yes, yes, a thousand percent yes. This is not Bruce Allen saying, we're close. It's like, no, we understand what we want to do, and we're not going to deviate that plan just because we did as we did in 2020. Ron even says, we did something that was a little unexpected, which I acknowledged, but at the same time, just because of that, I really don't think you throw the plan away and you start reaching and doing things you don't need to do right now. Yes, yes, a thousand percent yes. That's exactly the way to view things. You know, take, for example, the Matthew Stafford trade. So we know that Washington was in on Matthew Stafford. Washington was operating with urgency. Washington saw an opportunity to drastically upgrade at the quarterback position. I advocated for Washington to try to trade for Matthew Stafford. Well, what happened, right? The Detroit Lions ended up dealing Stafford to the Los Angeles Rams for what? Jared Goff, two first round picks, and a third round pick, a very steep price to be paid, even if you say, well, the Rams wanted to get rid of golf, and so you had to attach another first round pick in the package for Stafford to allow for the Lions to accept Jared Goff onto their team. Even if you view it that way, and it's not definite that that's how the Lions view it, we'll see. But that was a heavy price that ended up being paid for Matthew Stafford. Washington was only willing to go so far in its trade offers for Matthew Stafford. Washington, per multiple reports, offered a first round pick and a third round pick for Stafford. And it may have been more than that. There was the item from this Dallas Cowboys insider, Mike Fisher of SI.com, that Washington offered its 2021 first round pick, a third round pick, and quote, a starting player, end quote, to the Lions for Stafford. So if that's true, if it was a one, a three, and a starting player, that to me is an appropriate effort to try to trade for Matthew Stafford. You may want him, but you're only going to go so far. You're not going to give up two first round picks and a third round pick and a quarterback who was a first round pick and has had some success. I mean, I know Jared Goff, the, the shine has come off and certainly Sean McVay fell out of love with Jared Goff as time went on. But I mean, he's not awful either. I mean, I, I think it's almost been like an overcorrection with Goff where like people now talk about him like he's trash. And I'm kind of like, I don't know if I'd go that far with the guy. But anyway, like the Rams gave up a lot to get Stafford. Good for them. Bully for them. They're in a different spot right now in the wing curve than Washington is. Washington wasn't going to act desperate. Washington was going to act appropriately aggressive. And that's how Washington acted with the Stafford trade talks. Didn't work out. Okay, fine. You move on. There is no rush. You know, it doesn't have to be, we're close. It means you're close. Yes, Bruce. Thank you. And we have to do something this offseason or else we're doomed. Here was some more from Ron on Wednesday on this issue of balancing urgency with realism. Well, we, we, we'd like to stay with what we want to do. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that, uh, again, I get it. You know, we had success last year. People want to see us continue to do that. Well, you know, if if we try to take one big shot, you know, now you got to start all over again and again and again. What we want to do is we want to get to the point where we don't have to start all over. So we want to make sure we look at every option we have and, and, and we do things and we move cautiously, um, smart. Um, you know, we just – we, we, we don't want to, to put us, put ourselves in a position where we have to start all over again in a year or two. 
You know, we want to be able to say, hey, we've put the right pieces in place uh, that gives us the opportunity to go out and do the things that we want to do. But we want to be truly smart about it. Exactly. We want to be truly smart about it. How about this from Ron? Here he was on how much the draft factors into his decision making throughout free agency. And with this answer, you can actually hear very early in the answer a tell about Washington's strategy in free agency? Well, the, the, the big thing about it is is what you'd like to do at this portion of free agency is, you know, we have a couple of guys that we'd love to be able to get immediately, um, and we'll see how it goes. But if not, then we, we take a step back, we reset, and then we go out and we find guys, you know, and, and we'd love to find guys that have, the, that have the kind of impact, you know, that a Logan Thomas did, that a J.D. McKissick did, that a KPL, Kevin Pierre-Lewis did for us, you know. Uh, uh, Cornelius did for us. I mean, uh, you know, you, you know, you can sit there and say, oh, well, you know, they, they, they got a bunch of, you know, retreads. Well, look at how they play. You know, look at what JD McKissick did. Look what Logan Thomas did. Look at Kevin Pierre Lewis. Look at, look at how, how, how Lucas played for us. I mean, I, I, I think what has to happen is, you know, we've got to make sure we, we filter through all this and we find those guys that, that are going to perform like that. Um, and that, uh, you know, that really, you know, means that we've got to do our homework. We've got to study the people. Um, and then once we get them, we've got to coach them up and then put them in position to have success. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to do that last year to a degree. Um, I say to a degree because, you know, the, 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 the division was, was not as, as, as strong as you'd like it to be. Um, but at the end of the day, we did come out on top of it. Um, and and our guys, you know, worked and fought and put themselves in position to win. So that's what we're looking for right now. So you heard very early in that answer from Ron, I thought a tell, a reveal of the Washington strategy, the strategery when it comes to free agency this offseason. Quote, the big thing about what you'd like to do with this portion of free agency is we have a couple of guys that we'd love to be able to get immediately. We'll see how it goes. If not, then we take a step back, we reset, and we go out and find guys. End quote. Washington is going to try to strike big and strike early. Washington is going to be a player player early in the free agency process. Washington, remember, has all of the salary cap room. In fact, on Wednesday, the NFL Players Association put out the adjusted salary cap numbers for each team. So remember, each team is not operating on the same playing field in terms of what that team's cap is for the upcoming year because you have carryover cap room. So the salary cap was set officially on Wednesday at $182.5 million, but there's a wide variance across the NFL with what each team is dealing with based upon the carryover cap space. Washington, for instance, has an adjusted salary cap for the 2021 league year of $198.3 million because there's carryover cap space from last offseason. This was one of the things that I thought never got enough attention and Washington was never given enough credit for. We had people whining and complaining about Washington not being more active and aggressive in free agency. And I was like, well, you know, you can carry over the cap room. So just because you don't spend it all in 2020, uh, that doesn't mean that you lose it. It's not use it or lose it. It's you don't use it. Okay. It carries over. And so Washington has got itself nearly a $200 million salary cap to play with for 2021. The cap right went down from about $200 million to this 182.5. Washington, with its carryover space, has got its own personal cap up to 198.3 for the 2021 league year. That's significant. Washington deserves credit for that. And to this point of Washington wasn't that aggressive in free agency 
in 2020. Well, there's some nuance to that. Washington, remember, was aggressive early in free agency in 2020. The first initial things that we were hearing about Washington and free agency was that Washington was going hard after Amari Cooper. Washington wanted Amari Cooper. The thinking was that Washington was going to be in on Cooper. Washington was in on Cooper. Now, he obviously ended up resigning with the Dallas Cowboys. But remember what was reported about this. Michael Gelkin, Cowboys insider for the Dallas Morning News, tweeted the following. Quote, Cooper turned down significantly more money from Washington to remain in Dallas with hopes to win Super Bowl here, source said tonight. Dallas is where he wanted to be. End quote. ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter tweeted that Washington pursued Cooper and tried to pry him away. Dallas prevailed. ESPN NFL insider Ed Werder tweeted that a Washington source directly involved in the negotiation said that Cooper turned down an offer from Washington that would have, quote, put him right there with Julio, end quote, as in Julio Jones, as the highest paid receiver in the NFL. Washington was aggressive. Washington did take a big swing early. Washington just swung and missed. But it's not accurate to say that Washington wasn't aggressive. Now, After Washington failed to get Cooper, yeah, things did get toned down. That was apparently the only guy Washington truly wanted in terms of big money. Now, you did sign Kendall Fuller to a decent money contract, a $10 million AV uh, for that deal. So that's real money, but it's certainly not like overwhelming money or anything like that. And then the rest of Washington's free agent hall, you know, the likes of, right, Logan Thomas and J.D. McKissick and Cornelius Lucas and Wes Schweitzer and, you know, Cody Latimer, people like that. And people mocked it. And I was always like, yeah, it is kind of funny that this is all we're doing with our cap space. But it's wrong to say that this is a bad free agent class. Let's see what these guys end up being. And sure enough, Thomas and McKissick and Lucas and Schweitzer and Ronald Darby, right? Didn't even mention him. All those guys ended up being really good for Washington in 2020. So I think a similar strategy is going to be employed coming up next week. Washington is going to swing big, you know, whether it's Kenny Galladay or Curtis Samuel, to whatever extent Samuel would be swinging big, or Janu Smith, or maybe Hunter Henry, or, you know, whoever you want to come up with here, Washington is going to be in it on these guys, and or at least some of them, right? And if Washington doesn't connect, then I think you're going to see a similar pivot to what we saw last offseason. So the philosophy put forth by Ron on Wednesday, I really liked. I think it makes total sense. I'm on board with it. But it wasn't just free agency philosophy that Ron talked about on Wednesday. He also opened up about his conversation with Alex Smith. Did you see, by the way, the press conference on Wednesday for Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott talking about his big money contract extension with them boys? Dak actually credited and thanked Alex Smith for the comeback that Dak is trying to author from his nasty-looking leg injury in 2020. You know, talked about how what Alex did in coming back from his nasty-looking leg injury in 2018 inspired Dak and let him know that, yeah, you can come back from something that looks so gruesome and is so painful. That was really interesting to see that. Man, the love for Alex Smith across the NFL really is something else. So you continue to have that. And even people like myself who advocated for Washington to release Alex do say like, yeah, great dude, all-time great comeback story. But it was time to part ways for all of the reasons we've discussed on this podcast. And so with that, we had Ron Rivera on Wednesday for the first time, really truly, talking about the release of Alex Smith and what went into the conversation 
that Ron had referenced. Remember, when the Washington football team last Friday officially announced that Alex Smith was being released, Ron Rivera in the statement said, quote, I had a chance to meet with Alex Smith and we had a very honest and real discussion. After the conclusion of that meeting, we decided that it would be best for both parties to move on and we will be granting Alex his request to be released, end quote. Ron on Wednesday on this conversation with Alex before releasing him. Well, I, I think it was a, a, a very good conversation. It was very positive. It was uh, it, it was one of those things that 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 we both had a chance to to, to, to see the other side's perspective. And be quite honest with you, I, I don't disagree with a lot of things that he said. I really don't. And the biggest thing, and the thing he and I talked about really was that there really was no roadmap to get us to where we were. And I told him, I said, Alex, I'll be honest, I was scared to death. I had no idea. I didn't know what to expect. Um, which I believe he appreciated was, 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 was that I, you know, just tell him exactly how I felt and how hard you know, it was, uh, for, for us. Um, I think that's the thing everybody forgets is, you know, Alex did a great job. He worked his butt off to put himself in position to, to come back and play. Um, but I said, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a part that people don't understand. And that is we had to have, have a coaching staff had to look through this and, and think through this and, and, you know, it, it was always in the back of my head. You know, what if he gets hurt again? What if he hurts that leg, that that specific leg again? You know, I'm going to be the I'm going to be the guy that put him back on the field to to, to let him get hurt again. Um, so I, I, you know, I told him, I said I, I fought with that, struggled with that every day, every day. That was that was tough. And 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 you know, as we talk more and more, I, I think you know the realization. Um, you know, that, that, hey, you know, there, there's two sides to it. And, and as he said, you know, coach, there's, there, you know, really is no, no roadmap to, to, to get to where we got today. So I really appreciate him saying that. But, but again, like I said, I, I don't disagree with, with, with some of the things that he said in that article. I, I think they're fair. Um, you know, because you don't know, you, you come in and as a player and a new coaching staff comes in and you're not, you know, you, you're, you know, there's no tops. Uh, but the one thing I, I did tell Alex, I, I, I want you to understand this. If there was anybody that was behind you the whole way, it was Mr. Snyder, you know, because, um, he was the first guy Mr. Snyder had come to his house to meet me and tell that, Hey, this is the new head coach. And Alex and I got a chance to sit down and talk and, and, uh, we had a great conversation when he walked out. I, I said to Mr. Snyder, I said, you know, this reminds me of the Thomas Davis story, you know, when Thomas was coming off of his third knee surgery. He wanted to come back and play. And, and I thought, you know, my thinking, wow, that's crazy, but we'll see what happens. Well, I told Mr. Snyder that and Mr. Snyder said, if he plays wrong, I'm betting on the old guy. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole story to that that a lot of people don't know. And, and I get that, uh, because we don't talk much about it, but I really appreciated Alex coming to, to, to meet me for breakfast and, and having the conversation that we did. Um, you know, and, and, and knowing Alex from, from just this year. You know, he'll get an opportunity to play again. He really will, I think. Um, and, and he'll do a great job at it because, you know, that's who he is. Did his, did his second injury, the one he suffered late in the season, did that impact your view of whether he would, um, be durable or at all be capable of being a starter in 2021? Well, there, there's a lot of things that factor in all that stuff, but, you know, as far as, um, as, as I'm concerned, you know, we made a decision that we thought was best for us going forward. Um, you know, and, and, and as I said, you know, it was something he had talked to and we had talked about and, you know, had asked for his release. So, you know, we went ahead and did that. 
All right, so there was a lot to what we just played for you right there, including what Ron had to say to that follow-up question. A few things, though. So obviously, Ron was talking about what Alex had said to GQ.com and what were very telling comments where Alex says things like, there was a very small group of people that actually thought that I could do this. I think the rest of the world either doubted me or they patronized me. When I decided to come back, I definitely threw a wrench in the team's plan. They didn't see it, didn't want me there, didn't want me to be a part of it, didn't want me to be on the team. The roster didn't want to give me a chance. Uh, Mind you, it was a whole new regime. They came in. I'm like the leftovers, and I'm hurt, and I'm this liability. Heck no, they didn't want me there, end quote. Like, that's what a lot of this conversation had to do with, and you heard Ron addressed that. And Ron took the high road, very much so. And it's not to say that, like, I think Ron and Alex were yelling and screaming and MFing each other when they met. But I think there definitely was and probably still is tension. Like, I think Alex probably looks at this and says, you didn't want me back for 2021, even though I went 5-1 and one and guided you guys to an NFC East championship. And of course, as I've talked about, and as I know many of you believe, it's not as simple as Alex having gone 5-1 and one in 2020. He wasn't very good as the season went on. He got hurt again, even though it is said that the injury he suffered, whatever it was, team called it a right calf issue. Alex has referred to it as a bone contusion, whatever the case may be, uh, wasn't related to the ravaged right leg, the 17 surgeries, etc. But Alex's performance dipped as the season went on. Ron admitted after the Week 17 win at the Philadelphia Eagles to clinch the NFC East that Ron considered benching Alex in the game. And of course, Ron had talked prior to the game about the Kyle Allen thing and how if Kyle had stayed healthy, Washington would have been in the same position. And then, of course, we also, what we saw in the playoff loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Taylor Heineke played out of his mind. Taylor Heineke, a guy who wasn't even on the team a month prior, ended up giving Washington the single best quarterback performance of the season. So Ron takes the high road with that answer. I think he should take the high road. There's no need to, you know, try to point by point dissect what Alex had to say. I think this is interesting, though, too, where Ron talks about how fearful he was of Alex playing again. I think that's a big part of this whole Alex Smith scenario and why, you know, Ron and the rest of the team weren't like, hey, uh, this is this job is yours if you want it, you know? Nobody thought the guy was going to come back and play again. I sure didn't think the guy was going to come back and play again. And so especially if you're Ron and you're taking over the mess that was this franchise and you see Alex Smith in his situation, I mean, of course you want to be nice to the guy. And I think they were nice to him. You know, I don't think they were like mean to him or anything like that. But you also have to be realistic. You have to be sober in your analysis of your quarterback predicament. And you, you know, you can't just be like, Hey, Alex, the job is yours if you want it, man. We're going to, we're going to be with you every step of the way. And I'm really believing in you and you making the 53 man roster and being a part of this operation. Like, no, you're coming in. You're trying to figure out who you want to be with, who you don't want to be with. You're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. That's another thing. You weren't even in the building with guys for so much of last off season. And yeah, I mean, if Alex wasn't shown every ounce of love that he wanted to be shown, I mean, I can get that. I can understand that. You can love Alex as a guy. You can appreciate the comeback. But I don't like look at this and say that Alex is a victim in any of this or that Alex is some ultra sympathetic figure in any of this. I mean, remember, okay, remember, let's just be honest about this. He's been paid 
tens of millions of dollars by the Washington football team for three years, okay? So it's not like he suffered the leg injury, underwent the 17 surgeries, and was thrown out on the streets, okay? Or got fired or anything like that, all right? He's been paid tens of millions of dollars by this franchise. He's been compensated very well. He's been treated very well. He was sitting with the owner for so much of that 2019 season as time went on. He's been talked about in, you know, godlike ways. I mean, Alex Smith has been treated just fine. It's terrible what happened to him. Again, everyone loves him, leadership, etc. But like, you know, let's also be honest about this. The guy's been paid very well. He's been treated very well. And this thing of like, you know, Ron didn't show him enough love or Ron didn't believe in me. Nobody believed that you were going to make the comeback. That's why it's so amazing what you ended up doing here. And then with that follow-up exchange, where Ron gets asked if that Alex late season injury factored into his future in Washington, Ron did not say no, okay? Ron said there are a lot of things that factor into that kind of stuff. But as far as I'm concerned, we made a decision that we thought was best for us going forward. And uh, yes, I think it is best for you going forward, but I do think that injury was a factor because I think it really crystallized, you know, this guy's older. Everything with this right leg, whether the injury was related to the initial injury or not, is going to be a problem. Even if he stays healthy, he's a limited player. You know, I have brought this up. The guy over eight games last season had three rushing yards in today's NFL. Is that how you want your quarterback to be? Three rushing yards over eight games? And it's not like he was dynamic as a passer. You know, it's odd. He had those back-to-back 300-yard passing games for the first time in his career. It looked for a while like we were watching a different Alex, but as the season went on, Alex went back to being vintage Alex Smith. You know, low yards per pass attempt, high completion percentage. But, you know, even the thing that he'd been so good at for years, avoiding the turnover, even that wasn't a thing as 2020 went on. So much so that Alex Smith ended up finishing the 2020 season with his highest interception rate since 2009. So like the one thing that you always felt Alex did, avoid the turnover, avoid the interception. He didn't even do that in 2020. He actually had a higher interception rate than Dwayne Haskins had in 2020. Think about that. And of course, there's another thing to throw into this mix, which is Ron Rivera takes over the Washington football team last offseason. And what was one of the big things going on at that time? The whole issue of the training staff and Larry Hess and Trent Williams and others having opined that the Washington training staff had not been so great over the years. So here you are, Washington football team. You've got all these training staff complaints. You've had this recent run where it's been one post-surgery complication after another, whether it was Alex Smith, Colt McCoy, Darius Geis. And you're just going to say, yeah, Alex, go out there and play football again off the 17 surgeries to your right leg. Like, yeah, Ron was right to be cautious and right to be thinking about, I mean, if he plays again for us and something awful happens with that right leg, it's terrible for him. But let's be honest about this. It's going to be a terrible look for us and for me. So, you know, that was a factor in all of this as well. All right, one more topic from the Ron Rivera Wednesday Zoom press conference, and it is Brendan Sheriff, the guard who Washington has franchise tagged for a second consecutive offseason. The other one's a guard. Yes, thank you, Jay Gruden. Your former employer has, in fact, franchise tagged a guard for a second consecutive offseason. Here was Ron on Wednesday on placing this non-exclusive franchise tag on Brandon Sheriff and how that impacts the possibility of getting a long-term deal done. Yeah, that'd be nice. And and, and, and you never know. 
Um, I think the thing everybody has to understand is, is, you know, we want to try and keep our own. We're trying to show the players we want to keep our own. And at the same time, hopefully we can get those things done. Uh, you just don't know. But the thing is, uh, we have something, uh, special in terms of the players that, that are on this roster that, that we think fit us. And we want to be able to keep them around and we'll see what happens. Uh, but you do want to be able to fix it. You, you do be able to want to put it in, in position where it is down a long term. And it puts you in position to take care of the other guys. That's, that's the thing that we have to look at. You know, you hear Ron there talk about we have something for the players on this roster who we think fit us. And I think that speaks to something very key with the Brandon Sheriff situation. And that is that Ron very much views Brandon Sheriff as a culture guy. That Brandon Sheriff fits exactly the kind of culture that Ron's trying to establish. You know, John Allen clearly fits that. Terry McLaurin clearly fits that. I think they believe Brandon Sheriff fits that as well, and I think they're right in thinking that. My thing, though, would be this. You don't ever pay someone just because they fit your culture, right? The primary reason you pay someone, the primary reason you push across the table tens of millions of dollars to a player is because you feel like he's productive and he's good and he's going to continue to be productive and be good. And yes, fitting into your culture matters. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But to me, that's more like the cherry on top of the Sunday as opposed to the Sunday itself. And specific to the Sheriff deal and giving him this franchise tag, slapping him with a non-exclusive franchise tag for a second consecutive year, I don't know how you look at it any other way than the following, okay? Because actually, you, you know, we can debate like, is Brandon Sheriff worthy of a big money long-term contract? That can be debated. That can be discussed. But what cannot be debated are the following two things. Number one, Washington franchise tagging Brandon Sheriff for a second consecutive offseason disincentivizes him agreeing on a long-term deal. He's going to be guaranteed $18 million just by signing that franchise tag tender. Why would you sign a long-term deal if you can get yourself $18 million guaranteed in 2021, and then in 2022, with the cap going back up, you can just go into unrestricted free agency and name your price, you know, or at the very least, inside a bidding war, if in fact you've had another good season. Number two, Washington franchise tagging Brandon Share for a second straight year increases the likelihood of him leaving via free agency after 2021, because once you hit the open market, the likelihood of you leaving always goes up. It doesn't go down, okay? And think about this too. He may leave Washington via free agency off Washington having paid him, again, as Jay Gruden once said, a guard. And the other one's a guard. Yes, thank you, Jay. $33 million over two years. So let's think about this. You have Brandon Sheriff. You like him. He fits your culture. You pay him $33 million over two years. And then he leaves you. That's what you're staring at right now of having franchise tagged him for a second straight offseason. This is, in so many ways, the Kirk Cousins cha-cha-cha once again. Now, it's not as contentious as the Kirk situation became, but it's like the same scenario is playing out. Back-to-back franchise tags only disincentivize the player from signing a long-term deal because it's big money for each season, and then you're off into unrestricted free agency. And those back-to-back tags increase the likelihood of him leaving you. And so what you end up doing is overpaying the guy for two years, and then he up and walks, and you get back nothing for him other than potentially a compensatory pick. That's it. That's why I am not a fan of Washington having franchise tag sheriff unless it does lead to a long-term deal this offseason. But like I said, the second straight tag disincentivizes him agreeing 
on a long-term deal. So more from Ron on Wednesday on the Sheriff situation, specifically on how a long-term deal with Sheriff would be affected if he ends up playing on another one-year franchise tag tender and pay particular attention to what Ron says toward the end of this cut. Yeah, I mean, but that's the chance that, that we're going to take. You know, he, he was an integral part of the success we had last year. And, and you know, as we go through this, um, you know, if that's the situation, set circumstances, and, you know, he continues to prove to be an integral part, we're going to have a work cut out for us. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. That's the truth of the matter. Uh, as far as, um, you know, the, 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 the situation with the tag, it's, it's a tough deal. But, you know, if you're trying to do something and build it so that it lasts a while, sometimes you've got you got to do this. And, and, and that was my decision and my decision alone. So, you know, we'll see what happens. So how about that? Ron toward the end there says, it was my decision and my decision alone when it comes to Washington franchise tagging Brandon Sheriff for a second consecutive offseason. You wonder, is that Ron saying, point the finger of blame at me? You know, that, that very clearly, right, is Ron acknowledging the criticism of this because this has not been a popular decision. Washington deciding to franchise tag Brandon Shear for a second straight year. Most or at least many Washington football team fans are sophisticated enough, smart enough to understand how in doing this, Washington, like I said, has disincentivized Brandon from agreeing on a long-term deal and has increased the likelihood of you pay the guy two years, $33 million, and he up and leaves you via unrestricted free agency in the 2022 offseason. So Ron, who I know is aware of criticism, uh, Ron pays attention or at least has people who pay attention for him in terms of what's said about him and the team and the media, acknowledging that and saying it was my decision and my decision alone. And you also wonder this, was there disagreement within the Washington football team front office about this? You know, Ron has final say so on football operations as we know and as we hope. But, you know, you wonder, like the cap guy, Rob Rogers, was he a fan of franchise tagging Sheriff for a second straight year? Marty Herney, Martin Mayhew, were they fans of franchise tagging Brandon Sheriff for a second straight year? Wouldn't you love to know the backroom conversations, the corner office conversations that may well have been taking place in recent weeks regarding how to handle the sheriff free agency. You know, I said tagging sheriff, the only way I like it for a second straight year is if it leads to a long-term deal. I, I should add something to that. I'll, I'll like it too if it leads to a tag and trade, okay? Which I think Washington should be open to. I don't think they want to do that, but tag and trades do happen. Uh, they've actually happened a decent amount over the last few years. Anik Ngakwe, uh, Frank Clark. So it does go down. It can happen. It's not necessarily easy, but it can be done. So I would hope Washington is open to that. I don't get that sense. So I think Washington wants to retain Brandon Sheriff, or at the very least, Ron Rivera wants to retain Brandon Sheriff long-term. But I don't have a lot of optimism that that's going to happen, again, because you franchise tagged him for a second straight year. And the other one's a guard. Yes, thank you, Jay. You've made your point. You tell me what you think about all of the Washington football team conversation we've had on this podcast. Uh, hit me up on Twitter, at Al Galdi. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. But let's get to some non-Washington football team items before we call it a show or call it a pod uh, on this Thursday. The Wizards, they were back in action on Wednesday night, back from their all-star break. And pretty, this game was not. Wiz fall to 14-21, and 21, a 127-112 loss at the Memphis Grizzlies. The Wizards never led in the game by more than two points. Now, they did overcome a 19-point second quarter deficit, went on a 38-18 run to take a one-point lead in the third quarter at 79-78, but the Wiz then got outscored the rest of the game 49-33. And there were two things in particular 
that really jumped out at you, really slapped you across the face, if you're like me, and a lifelong bullet slash Wizards fan. So number one, the Wizards got obliterated inside. Wizards actually held the Grizzlies to 8 of 23 on threes. That's quite good, especially for this Wizards team, which has had a problem defending the three this season and for many seasons. But inside the paint, it was absolute devastation. The Wizards got outscored by the Grizzlies in the paint 78-48. The Wizards got outscored by 30 points inside the paint, and the Wizards themselves had 48 paint points. That's not a terrible total in terms of paint points. You gave up, though, 78 points in the paint. Memphis went just 8-23 of on threes, but the Wizards allowed the Grizzlies to go 42 for 76 on twos. And this is in concert, as the late great Marty Schottenheimer would say, with something else that went badly for the Wizards on Wednesday night, and that is rebounding. The Wizards got embarrassed on the boards, got out-rebounded 60-39. The Wizards had six offensive rebounds to the Grizzlies' 14, had just eight second-chance points to the Grizzlies' 22, and the Wizards were owned by Jonas Valanciunas. And Valanciunas is a good player, no doubt. But how about the final line for Jonas Valanciunas against our Wizards on Wednesday night? 20 rebounds. The guy had 20 boards, including nine offensive rebounds, to go with 29 points and four blocks. Again, eviscerated inside the paint to the tune of Jonas Valanciunas, putting up 29 points, 20 rebounds, and four blocks. It was bad. It was not pretty. Wizards also had trouble scoring. Shots just 40% from the field, including 11 to 36 on threes. Actually, here's all you need to know about this Wizards game on Wednesday night. Only one player was made available to speak to reporters after the game. Do you know who that player was? Troy Brown Jr. That was the only Wizards player who spoke to reporters after the game. I saw this tweeted by Wizards insider Fred Katz of the Athletic DC, and I was shaking my head. SMH when I saw that. I was like, boy, does that not just perfectly capture what we witnessed on Wednesday night? Troy Brown Jr., a guy who had been a DNP CD for six of the previous 10 games, a guy who played for a mere 13 minutes, two seconds off the bench in this game, He's the player who speaks to reporters after the game. Nobody else, you know? And Troy Brown Jr., if you've been paying attention to this stuff, actually had a bit of a thing on Twitter recently where he lost his dog, Dex, and then got him back. And that's good news. Like, we're happy for Troy in that regard. But a guy who had been in DNPCDville for Scott Brooks ends up playing a decent amount on Wednesday night. Okay, fine. And he's the guy who is uh, deemed the only wizard who talks to the media after that game. I, I, that, that is classic Wizards right there. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, exactly, Stephen A. Uh, Bradley Beal on Wednesday night. So we should talk about this. Bradley Beal did not have a very good game. He shot just six of 22 from the field, including one of eight on threes. Do you know what Bradley Beal's three-point percentage is for this season now? 32.8%. I've mentioned this I don't think this ever gets discussed enough about Beal. And Beal is a very good player. I'm not trying to trash Bradley Beal. Leading scorer in the NBA at the All-Star break. Like, that's tremendous, right? But Bradley Beal is not a good three-point shooter. You know, he does most of his damage in the mid-range game. And that's not like a crime. But we do know in today's NBA, it's important that you be able to shoot the three well. He's not shooting the three well this year at all. 32.8%. And Beal, for a while, was a very good three-point shooter. The three-point shooting has declined in recent years. And this season, 
Uh, this is not like some unusual thing, him having an off night from beyond the arc. One of eight on threes on Wednesday night, just 32.8% on threes for the season. He finished with just 21 points, which for Beal obviously is a low point total. Uh, did have five assists versus no turnovers. You know, Beal also has had a bit of a turnover problem this year. No turnovers on Wednesday night, so that was good. Uh, also did have three steals. But it was just not a good game for the Wizards. Davies Berton's another underwhelming game. Three of seven on threes, five fouls off the bench. Rui Hachimura went just three of ten from the field. Uh, the Wizards uh, continued to start. Mo Wagner, Wagner two and nine shooting, including 0 of four on threes. And he fouled out in just 21 minutes, 39 seconds of playing time. The two positives for you, Russell Westbrook was pretty good. 0 of three on threes, but 10 of 16 on twos, 20 points, 10 assists versus four turnovers, five rebounds and three steals. And Denny Avdia had a nice game for the Wizards off the bench, three of five on threes, 13 points, and six rebounds. Wiz now 14 and 21, like I said, two and a half games out of eighth in the East. And how about what's ahead for our Wizards? The next three games are against two of the top three teams in the Eastern Conference. Wizards are home to the Philadelphia 76ers Friday night at eight, then home to the Milwaukee Bucks Saturday night at seven, then home to the Bucks again on Monday night at seven. Philly is first in the East, Milwaukee is third in the East. You are about to face the big boys over your next three games. And if you let Joel Embiid and the Greek freak do you inside the way you let Jonas Valanciunas do you inside on Wednesday night, you got no shot over these next three games. Wizards have got to be better. Hopefully they are better. The damn Washington Wizards. Let's talk about something more positive. The Nationals. Uh, some good news lately when it comes to the Nationals rotation. Steven Strasburg looked very good in his Grapefruit League debut. Joe Ross looked very good in his Grapefruit League debut. And Max Scherzer on Wednesday afternoon in his second Grapefruit League outing was not just good, but was dominant. This was Cy Young level Max Scherzer on display in what ended up being a 3-2 win over the St. Louis Cardinals. Max in this outing, three perfect innings with five strikeouts. Now, we don't like to spend a lot of time dissecting and analyzing spring training game performances, but with Max Scherzer, remember, Davey Martinez revealed back on February 18th, the day on which Nats pitchers and catchers had their first workout of spring training, that Max had sprained his left ankle while conditioning about two weeks earlier. So this has been kind of a thing, right? Where is Max at coming off the left ankle sprain. You know, Max has dealt with some ailments in recent years, especially in 2019. Actually did stay healthy in 2020, but as we've discussed, wasn't necessarily Cy Young level Max in 2020. Well, so far, so good for Max Scherzer in terms of his two Grapefruit League games, and he was outstanding in this game uh, against the Cardinals on Wednesday afternoon. There's been no sign of like any lingering effects uh, of the sprained left ankle. You know, I kind of feel like at this point, maybe we can just bury the, the sprained left ankle conversation with Max Scherzer, but he was really good against the Cardinals on Wednesday afternoon, going into his age 36 season, going into the final season of the seven-year $210 million deal. And like I said, last year, I mean, he wasn't bad, but he wasn't Cy Young level max. You know, he had an ERA of 374. That's not awful, but that's not what we're accustomed to with Max Scherzer. So I don't know how high you can truly have expectations for, again, a guy going into his age 36 year, but I'll tell you what, if there's someone who in his age 36 season can dominate it, it is Max Scherzer. And he was at that level, certainly, on Wednesday afternoon. There was another good news item regarding the Nats rotation on Wednesday, and that was that John Lester spoke to reporters via Zoom press conference. So this John Lester situation, just to reset it, it was the previous Wednesday, March 3rd, that Davey Martinez revealed that Lester had flown to New York to have thyroid surgery. 
The surgery took place on Friday. Lester was back with the Nats on Monday. And then on Wednesday, John Lester spoke. And he finally kind of uh, gave us some detail about what exactly is going on here with this thyroid situation uh, that kind of came out of nowhere, at least, you know, for those of us on the outside looking in. So it turns out that John Lester had one of his parathyroids removed. It was initially said that the thyroid was being removed. Uh, that was not the case. Shockingly, uh, we were not told exactly what was happening uh, with a Nats medical situation. Imagine that. It's only happened about 400 times over the years. But whatever the case, I mean, some of this stuff can be complicated. I'll grant you that. But anyway, uh, Lester has one of his parathyroids removed. The parathyroids, by the way, are four small glands in the neck that surround the larger thyroid are responsible for regulating calcium levels in the body. There will be a quiz at the end of this podcast. Anyway, his other three parathyroids and the thyroid gland itself are functioning well. So it was just this one bad parathyroid that needed to be removed. But here's what's interesting about this. So this condition that Lester was dealing with had led to fatigue. It was fatigue that went back to 2020 And it was fatigue that was so bad at times that he said that he would be feeling fatigue like just after pregame warmups. Okay, so never mind like he's fatigued in the fifth or sixth inning. He said that he would feel drained after pregame warmups, not like every time, but enough to where he remembered it and talking about this on Wednesday. And he also said, and this is the most important thing of all, by the way, this condition, this parathyroid that needed to be removed had nothing to do with his cancer history. John Lester in 2006 was diagnosed with lymphoma, as many of you listening already know. So that's great news, right? Because we didn't know if this was a recurrence of cancer, if this was maybe a result of the chemotherapy he underwent for the cancer. It sounds like this had nothing to do with the cancer. So let's hope uh, that does, in fact, uh, prove to continue to be the case. But here's the takeaway to me, if you're a Nats fan regarding John Lester. So John Lester, the last two years, hasn't been very good. Um, you know, the Nats are not getting peak John Lester here. John Lester was exceptional for the Boston Red Sox and Chicago Cubs for years. Last two years have not gone well. Uh, 2019, 446 ERA, 2020, a 516 ERA. Don't you have to wonder if maybe some of that was due to this fatigue issue that he was dealing with, especially in 2020? Um, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and just say, well, okay, that absolves him of the 516 ERA in 2020. Like, no, that's not good. And I think you're being naive if you think that's all just about this parathyroid issue. You know, his fastball velocity was a career worst 89.8 miles per hour in 2020 per Sports Info Solutions. That's a problem. But I would say this, I think the fatigue was a factor. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that. And so if the Nats are getting a better version of this late career John Lester, i.e., no, he's not what he was in his peak years, but yes, he's a better version of himself versus what we've seen the last two years, that's really good news. You know, when Lester was saying this on Wednesday, I'm like, you know what? This could actually really pave a realistic path here for some real optimism for John Lester. Not that, again, he's going to be dominant in 2021, but that he's not the bad pitcher we've seen over the last few years. And remember this too with John Lester, he's got connections with the Nats coaching staff. Dave Martinez was the Cubs bench coach from 2015 to 2017 and worked with Lester. Uh, the Nats new pitching coach is Jim Hickey. He was the Cubs pitching coach for the 2018 season. So Martinez and Hickey know Lester. Lester's had this parathyroid issue taken care of. Lester is tough as nails. He never misses time, knock on wood. He made at least 31 starts in each of 12 consecutive regular seasons, 2008 through 2019 and made the equivalent of 32 starts in the shortened 2020 season and making 12 starts 
in that 60 game season. So yeah, like as a number four starter, I think there is reason to believe that you could get some decent production from John Lester in 2021. All right, it may prove to be nothing more than a last gasp effort, but let's give credit where credit's due. Georgetown had a much-needed victory on Wednesday afternoon in the first round of the Big East tournament, and it was an impressive victory. It was a spanking of Marquette at Madison Square Garden. The eight-seeded Georgetown Hoyas ripped the nine-seeded Marquette Golden Eagles 68-49 to advance in the Big East tournament to, in fact, give Patrick Ewing his first Big East tournament victory as Hoyas head coach. Georgetown now one and three in Big East tournament games with Patrick Ewing as the head Hoya. And this was maybe Georgetown's best defensive game of the season. The Hoyas held Marquette to five of 24 on threes. The Hoyas in the first half held Marquette to 14 points, 14 points in the first half on six of 28 shooting. The Hoyas had 10 steals in the game. Five steals by Dante Harris, three steals by Donald Carey. The Hoyas were dominant on the glass. The Wizards could have taken a cue from the Hoyas. Georgetown 16 offensive rebounds to Marquette 7, 22nd chance points to Marquette's 4. You got a big game from Javon Blair, who continues to come off the bench, 2 of 5 on 3, 6 and 9 on 2s, 20 points in 29 minutes. Kudis Wahab, the big man, the Nigerian, had a good game, 19 points, 6 of 8 shooting, and 7 rebounds in just 25 minutes as a starter. Look, Georgetown was not perfect. Uh, a lot of guys had bad games in terms of shooting. Jamarco Pickett, Chudier Belay, and Dante Harris had combined 5 of 30 from the field, but the Georgetown defense got the job done. And we discussed this with our pal, our guy, Patrick Stevens, bracketologist for the Washington Post on Tuesday's podcast. And Patrick is going to join me again here momentarily. But Georgetown probably needs to win the Big East tournament to make the NCAA tournament. Otherwise, you're looking at a sixth consecutive NCAA tournamentless season for the Hoyas. But, you know, I brought this up on the podcast. I wondered if maybe yesterday was going to prove to be the final game for Patrick Ewing as Hoyas head coach. Like, not just the final game for Georgetown season, but maybe the final game for Ewing as Hoyas head coach, especially coming off that terrible performance for the Hoyas in that loss at UConn this past weekend. So I think that, look, does this game, like, change everything? No, but this was a needed win in, in a lot of ways, and this was an impressive win. So good job for Patrick and his guys. And how about what you got on tap here for the Hoyas on Thursday? Eight-seeded Georgetown versus one-seeded Villanova in the Big East tournament Thursday at noon. Now, you might say, well, boy, that's going to be an easy, breezy win for Nova. Not so fast, my friend. And if you've been paying attention, you know this. Villanova's senior point guard, Colin Gillespie, done for the year, suffered a season-ending torn left MCL on March 3rd. Another key player for Villanova, Justin Moore, who went to DeMatha, by the way. He suffered a severe ankle sprain this past Saturday. Villanova almost certainly is going to be without two key players. Definitely Gillespie, probably more, especially when you factor in Villanova doesn't need the Big East tournament to make the NCAA tournament. This might be a Villanova team, you know, early day matchup too. Sometimes teams are thrown off by that, a noon tip at MSG. This could be a Villanova team ripe for the picking, ripe for the upset. And if you're a Georgetown fan, you know this, but if you're not, understand this. Georgetown has taken it to Villanova twice already this season. December 11th, it was the Hoyas' Big East opener, 76-63 loss to Villanova at McDonough Arena. The Hoyas actually led by 18 at one point in the first half. 
led at the half by 13, then got demolished in the second half. Hoyas got outscored 43-17 in the second half of that game. But in the first half, the game was a game. Game number two for Georgetown against Villanova this season. The more recent game, February 7th. Georgetown lost that, 84-74 at Nova. But the Hoyas led deep into the second half of that game at 67-66. Did then get outscored the rest of the game, 18-7. This really has been one of the frustrations with the Hoyas this season. They are in games. It's not like they're getting romped game in and game out. Georgetown is competitive. Georgetown is in these games. Georgetown just doesn't win these games often enough. But a Villanova team that Georgetown has taken it to to varying extents already this season, set to be without two key players in Colin Gillespie and Justin Moore. So a prime opportunity. If Georgetown is going to pull this off, right, make the late season run, win the Big East tournament, you need some things to go your way. And maybe, just maybe, this matchup with Villanova and these injuries Villanova is dealing with are signs that something special could be a Bruin with the Hoyas. Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Yes, you know, the legendary voice of the Hoyas, Rich Fotkin, was loving what we saw at MSG on Wednesday afternoon. All right, I mentioned him. Patrick Stevens, bracketologist for the Washington Post, did a great job talking Georgetown basketball on Wednesday's podcast. He's back with me right now for this Thursday podcast, as in addition to Georgetown playing on Thursday, we also have Maryland, Virginia, and Virginia Tech playing on Thursday. Terrapins versus Michigan State in Indianapolis at 11.30 on Thursday morning in the second round of the Big Ten tournament. Cavaliers versus Syracuse in Greensboro at noon in the ACC tournament quarters. And then the Hokies versus North Carolina in Greensboro Thursday night at 9 in the ACC tournament quarters. Uh, i tell you what, Patrick, let's begin with our Maryland Terrapins. So they wrapped up a 15-12 and 12 regular season and 9-11 and 11 Big Ten regular season with that 66-61 loss to Penn State at Xfinity Center on Sunday night. A complete collapse of a loss, a second straight loss. The belief has been that Maryland is already in when it comes to the NCAA tournament. If the Terps, though, are one and done in the Big Ten tournament, is Maryland on the NCAA tournament bubble or are the Terps still in? Yeah, I, I think Maryland ultimately does get in, not comfortably. Uh, I, I think you're probably staring at a, at a play-in game situation at that point. You obviously have pluses if you're Maryland. You've got the win at Illinois. You've won at Wisconsin. You've won at Rutgers. You beat Purdue. You beat Michigan State. You beat five teams that are probably going to be in the tournament field. And, and compared to everybody else uh, at the edge of the field, that's going to be a pretty hefty number. Um, at the same time, if, if they lose, they're what, 15 and 13, and one of those victories is over a, a Division II team. Um, the last time a team had a winning percentage worse than the 536 that Maryland would have at 15 and 13 and made the tournament was 2001 when Georgia did it at 16 and 14. Villanova in 91 was also 16 and 14. Um, I think it, it, may, it would make for a harrowing few days. Uh, but when you look at the edge of the field right now, it just it just simply isn't very good. And, and it's a weaker field, I think, uh, than what we've seen certainly the last few years right anyway. Plus, there's an extra at-large bid this year because the Ivy League is not participating this season. What to you is the variance in terms of seeding for the Terps in the NCAA tournament? Like the realistic floor, the realistic ceiling in terms of that Maryland seed for the tournament? Well, the floor is probably a 12 seed. I mean, you, you see those play-in games usually on the 11 or 12 line, so that's probably the floor. As for a ceiling, I mean, what you're talking about beating Michigan State and Michigan on back-to-back days 
at minimum to, to improve their lot in life, maybe a nine, maybe a 10, something like that. But I, I, I do not imagine Maryland wearing a home jersey uh, in the first round of the NCAA tournament. What do you make of this Maryland team? Because it's obviously been such an odd year, right? Terps begin Big Ten play 1-5, and five, then win 8-12, then wrap up the regular season with that two-game losing streak. It, it, it's been a strange run here uh, for this team. What do you make of this team? Well, some of that run was sort of schedule influenced. I mean, that was a really front-loaded schedule. Uh, you were kind of looking at, at how January had no Penn State, no Nebraska, no Northwestern. Uh, and those were the teams you assumed that they would wind up um, being able to collect a, a fair number of wins against. Instead, they went two and three against them. Uh, but ultimately, those are the teams that most of the league were, were able to, to do some damage against. They also played one of their Minnesotas in January and, and one of them in February. Um, so the schedule had something to do with it. Uh, dealing with Wisconsin twice in the first, I think that was, I think the second Wisconsin game was late January. They played Michigan twice by mid-January, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I really didn't have a whole lot of optimism for for this season, just given the roster construction. And once they got done running into teams with really good big men, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, they were done with Hunter Dickinson early. They were done with Luca Garza early. Uh, they were done with just with uh, Kobe Coburn early. They were done with Travion Williams fairly early. I think the second Purdue game was in February. Uh, but you know, you go down the list. Uh, Jackson Davis from Indiana they dealt with in January. So they were able to basically get on a bit of a roll in part because they weren't playing nearly as many of those teams that had clear matchup advantages against them in the post. Uh, and, and as for what to make of the, the last week of the season. Well, you know, they're a team on the roll. They're feeling good. You know, you've seen that happen enough where, where a team's doing really well and it has a game that it's supposed to win. It has to go on the road. It's feeling good. You know, it just it just doesn't get the job done. So the Northwestern game didn't really astonish me, given that this was not an overwhelmingly talented team. When it- uh, the Penn State game was a bit of a surprise just because – uh, you know, you thought that they, they, they'd be able to, to bounce back and, and just take care of some business at home. It didn't happen. It was every bit the rock fight that you expect a Maryland-Penn State basketball game to be. So, you know, I, I, I think the explanation, frankly, is that they're a team that isn't as super talented as some of those teams at the top of the league, like a Michigan or an Iowa or an Illinois, uh, that you see sitting there as potential one and two seeds. Uh, and that there's a you know less margin for error for these guys, uh, and when they don't take care of their business like they most certainly didn't in the second half against Penn State, bad things can happen. When it comes to Mark Turgeon, two seasons left beyond this season on that contract extension that he signed back in October 2016. Damon Evans, rather interestingly, has been non-committal about Turgeon's future. It does kind of feel this off season you either extend Turgeon or maybe a departure. In fact, takes place. What do you think happens with Mark Turgeon? It's a good question, and you're right. At some point, you're getting down on number of years where you almost are better off making a decision one way or the other, as opposed to uh, as opposed to letting things kind of linger and, and essentially have a, have a coach that's hamstrung one way or the other. Now, you know, does Maryland want to pay six million dollars to make Mark Turgeon go away um, for a guy that you know is going to? There's a there's a, a pretty high floor. To what you're going to get uh, based on the last decade or so. 
Uh, you're, you're not not ever going to have a team that's really just completely overmatched over a full season. I think this year demonstrated that. I think, you know, if we look at this season, there's two ways to kind of assess Hurt. There's the front end, which was the roster construction, where he got caught without a lot of size, which I think is a valid criticism. Uh, but you look at the actual job of coaching the team and maximizing what they could get, you take out the last week, and really, I would say, just take out the last game. Because, like I said earlier, the Northwestern game felt like one of those where, you know, he kind of felt like that was coming a little bit. Uh, even if they'd been playing great, you just kind of knew there was kind of one stinker left in there, and that was kind of the right spot for him. Yeah, I thought he's done as good a job as he has at just about any point in his tenure this year, maximizing what he has. So... You know, do you do you get rid of a coach after he just made a, or basically had his best coaching job? You could say. I mean, I think he did a better job coaching this year than say the Sweet 16 team that was loaded and everybody thought was going to be great and just kind of was not a whole lot of fun to watch, even though they won. Um, this team, at least, is you know, there's some excitement to it and, and all that. Um, when I when I think about that, I, I do think Maryland ha- probably has a decision to make, even if it's the sort of contract extension that you see that has a minimal buyout. Uh, there has to be some sort of sweetener in there to get the guy to sign it. Uh, but you got to think about doing that, especially if you've gone ahead and made the tournament again for the third consecutive. Well, would have been the third consecutive year. Do want to get your take on Virginia, a fifth ACC regular season title in eight seasons, number one seed in the ACC tournament in Greensboro. Cavaliers have been a good team this season, you know, maybe not a great team, but still wind up as ACC regular season champions again. What kind of an NCAA tournament seed are the Cavs looking at going into the ACC tournament? You know, I think they wind up somewhere in the three to five range. Um, if they can win the ACC tournament and beat Florida State along the way, I think they might be able to wind up up on the three line. More likely than anything, a four line or a five line for them. Uh, you kind of look at what they've done. I mean, the set of victories is, is solid enough. I mean, uh, they beat Clemson on the road. They beat Georgia Tech twice, which for the first time in seemingly a decade is a, is a meaningful accomplishment. Uh, they beat North Carolina. They won at Louisville. So, I mean, they've got good victories. And, and you look at the games that they lost – uh, obviously the San Francisco stumble early in the season. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about them to me is that they're probably, they're not nearly as good a defensive team. Uh, I shouldn't say nearly, but they're not at the level of defense that you usually associate with them. But offensively, they've been pretty good. Um, not as good as their national championship team, but pretty good. And, and so this is the team that's actually capable of getting itself in a, in a fairly low possession game into the high 60s with, with regularity. Uh, I, I do think ultimately, you know, you look at that matchup, you know, against a Syracuse team that, um, has, has, is missing some size or against NC State, uh, a team that they'll be more than happy to get a second crack at. Uh, I, I think they'll win that game and then you're kind of looking at what a, a possibility with Georgia Tech or Clemson in the semifinals. I, I think we see Virginia wind up making it. Uh, to Saturday night in Greensboro, and it's kind of depending on the matchup who they get. If it's if it's a Florida State, I kind of like the Seminoles to win that again. If it's Virginia Tech, I kind of expect Virginia to go ahead and hang another ACC tournament fan. You know, to your point about the offense-defense split with Virginia, it has been kind of a reverse season. If you go by the KenPalm.com efficiency numbers, Virginia's been like top 15 in the country in offensive efficiency and more like, you know, top 35 
in defensive efficiency. Both rankings are good overall, but like we're not used to that. That's kind of a flip here this season with the Cavaliers. Yeah, you look at that defensive, the adjusted defensive efficiency number, it's their worst since Tony Bennett's second season. Uh, when they went 16 and 15, it was the last time that, uh, it was the last year before they made the tournament for the first time because they had the, the one miss there in 13 after that. Whereas the offensive number is actually the third best of the, of the Tony Bennett era behind the final four of the national championship team in 2019 and uh, the Elite Eight team in 2016. So you know, adding Sam Hauser helped a lot. Jay Huff has been fantastic uh, for the Cavaliers. And you look at what they were able to get in that last game against Louisville. I mean, when they start getting bench contributions as well, uh, that makes them super dangerous at the offensive end. Talking with Patrick Stevens, bracketologist for the Washington Post. So Virginia Tech, it goes into the ACC tournament having not played since February 27th. Hokies' final two regular season games canceled due to a contact tracing review and then quarantining within the Hokies program. Tech is the three seed in the ACC tournament. Mike Young on Monday named ACC Coach of the Year. What do you expect Tech to land in terms of seeding in the NCAA tournament? Yeah, they're kind of a tricky team right now just because, one, you know, like you say, they've only played like two games since February 6th. So, you know, they could be staring at having played three games in the 40 days leading into the first round of the NCAA tournament, which is kind of a scary thought for them. Uh, you look at them, and then they beat Virginia or Villanova early in the season on a neutral floor. They beat Virginia at home. They didn't play a ton of games against the top tier in the conference. I mean, you look at those at those 13 games that they played in the ACC, there's a couple Wake Forests in there. Uh, they played Notre Dame a couple times. Uh, they played Miami twice. So we just we just got six of their 13 games right there uh, with teams that are under 500. They also played Pitt, who's under 500. They played Duke, who's 500. Uh, you know, the only thing missing there is Boston College. So, you know, they have some decent victories. Uh, but there's just not that many of them. They beat Virginia at home, like we said. They beat Clemson back in December as well. I kind of view them just based on the fact that they didn't do anything particularly silly over the course of the season. They've got a really inoffensive resume, and it seems to me that they're probably like in that 7-8 seed range. I think they'll be a little tougher for the committee to evaluate just because you're talking about, about you know, 70% of the games that some of the other teams are going to get to play. So, you know, the Hokies can help themselves a bit for sure, uh, especially if they wind up getting uh, North Carolina in the quarterfinals come Thursday down in Greensboro. Patrick, uh, love talking college hoops with you, man. All the best. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much for having me out. Take care. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. I do believe this goes down as the longest installment of the Al Galdi podcast since we started doing this a few weeks back. But hey, that's how it works. When Ron Rivera speaks, we listen and we dissect, we process what Don Ron has to say. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, review, spread the word about this podcast. All of your support continues to be so appreciated. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. It means you're close.